Hi, I'm Natalie Wires, along with Jason Nias from Digital River, an e-commerce company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our times. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started, lessons they've learned that have gotten them to where they are today, and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hi, this is Natalie Wires from Digital River, and today I am happy to welcome our guest who is taking the B2B buying experience to a new level with his company, TreviPay. Brandon Spear is TreviPay's CEO, which offers B2B customers a chance to ditch lengthy buying procedures that can tie up funds and company time. Brandon has an impressive background with SaaS companies, helping them grow from those early startup years to scalable global businesses. Welcome, Brandon. Hey, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Looking forward to the podcast today. We're thrilled to have you. Um, I'd love to hear more about your career journey, which found you often at critical turning points for the companies that you've worked for. Can you tell me a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So as, uh, as you can probably tell from my accent, I didn't grow up in the US. I grew up in South Africa. And I've been fortunate to be in a number of different industries and different industry categories over my career. My first role in South Africa was actually being involved in starting what became the largest internet service provider in Africa, which was in in the early 90s and was obviously the industry to be in at the time. We felt like we were transforming the world. And uh, and that then led me to uh, being in procurement software and procurement marketplaces Uh, That, in fact, was the company that brought me to the U.S. 15, 16 years ago, a company called Quadrum that did procurement in the mining industry. And then uh, I stayed in in procurement uh, software for several years after that. Quadrum was acquired by Ariba, and then Ariba was ultimately acquired by SAP. So I was in procurement software and SaaS businesses for about 12 years. And then I transitioned my career to the payments business when I joined TreviPay about seven years ago, which was uh, has also been a tremendous journey, a really fun journey. And, and we've been through a cool transformation with this business as well. That's amazing. Um, so uh, at TreviPay, you are really working to revolutionize a trend, which is making the B2B experience more customer centric. Can you tell me a bit more about what TreviPay is working on right now? Yeah, so I think one of the you know the challenges with business-to-business transactions and business-to-business payments is that, and this is the analogy I always use, you know, when you when we're buying in our consumer lives, there's one decision maker, there's one budget holder, there's one key influencer, and so it's easy to to basically make a decision to buy something. In the business world, there are generally multiple stakeholders. You might have a budget owner. You might have somebody in accounts payable who's got to ultimately pay the bill. Uh, You might have a subject matter expert that you have to involve before you can make the purchase. And so in general, that complexity in the B2B world has made the B2C-like experience difficult to actually get at. And, and, but that doesn't mean that it's an insurmountable problem. It just means that you have to be more aware of, of the way business buyers buy and be able to meet them where they're comfortable. So if you can line up the way a customer wants to buy uh, and get and as a merchant, as a seller, be prepared to meet them where they, where and how they want to transact with you. 
then you can actually create really quite a powerful experience and 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 uh, and in a you know perfect world increase your share of wallet with those customers. Absolutely. Um, so you know we've talked a lot on this podcast about how B two B business is changing, right? Customer expectations are changing. Um, just the the general landscape. Obviously, we all went through a massive um, change in the way business is done last year. Uh, through the, you know, COVID pandemic, you know, what do you see? I'm just curious to get your general lay of the land of the landscape of how B2B buying is changing and what companies need to be thinking about. Yeah. So I think, you know, like, like all of us, businesses had to go online last year with people working remotely and more of their customers being remote. There was a real push to, to online and I think you know there's lots of dimensions that you can look at that that become critical to solve for when when you move online. One of the big mega trends I'd say that we see is is that distribution models and go to market models are changing. I think in the past companies have often sold through resellers or through distributors, and more and more often these days because of e-commerce, there's a there's a desire to go direct to those end customers. Uh, so we see that as being a, a major shift and, and it's changing then the competencies that those, those customers might have, those merchants might need to have to be able to do that. I think we also, during the pandemic, saw a, you know, a drying up, so to speak, of, of working capital, of sources of working capital. And, and although there was a lot of government funding that was deployed, um, it's, uh, it's not long term. It's something that you ultimately have to be able to replace. And so I think more and more companies were aware of, of their day sales outstanding and, and the, the amount of working capital that that was consuming. And then I think the, the final piece of this is there's a generational change that's happening with who the buyers are. And I think there's, you know, for the first time, there's going to be more millennials who are in the in the job market in the in the workplace who are who are actually making these purchasing decisions. And I think they have an expectation around how this needs to work and, and how simple it needs to be because of the way they've grown up and the consumer experiences that they've had. So I think when you put those three things together, this changing go-to-market dynamic, a changing buyer, as well as changing sources of funding, changing sources of capital, it's completely changed, you know, it's completely shifted the way the B2B transaction has to happen and what you what the, I guess, what the the entry level service needs to be, what the table stakes need to be. Yeah, let's unpack that um, a bit more. So when you think about creating a direct to consumer channel and having it either be additive or disruptive of your normal sales channels, you know, that I imagine causes a good amount of angst within a company. How do you see the successful companies sort of dealing with that head on and, and addressing, you know, adding this new channel to their go to market? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and it's obviously you know again one of these sort of multi-dimensional challenges that you have to get right. A lot of it's got to do with how you set up your organization um, and how you deal with you know you you just hit the nail on the head. How you deal with potential channel conflict. Uh, you know there might be a, a a big chunk of the the resellers and and distributors that you want to keep. Or you might want to have them shift towards a more service-orientated model. 
Um, there's obviously, you know, changing business models with a move towards consumption business models as well. And so I think all of that factors into, you know, you have to think, really think through and be very conscious about how you can avoid the channel conflict as much as possible. I think there's also, you know, a new set of organizational muscle and competencies that you have to build if you're going to start going direct. And if you're moving from having tens or hundreds of channel partners, and now all of a sudden you might have tens of thousands of end customers, it requires a different level of expertise in credit and underwriting, in managing risk, in managing how you get paid, and managing collections activities, all of the things that might have been done by your channel before. So it's, uh, it's not a simple transition, but I think that the companies that are getting it right uh, are dealing with all of those, those, uh, those different challenges very effectively. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're shifting their whole process and, and then they're getting a ton of benefits in the meantime, right? So one of the huge benefits of a direct-to-consumer channel, whether you're a B2B or a B2C company, is this influx of data that you suddenly have access to. Um, what are you seeing, you know, or what would you recommend to companies of how they should utilize that data to their benefit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the, I think one of perhaps the, you know, the most powerful side effects of those changing go-to-market models is, is you can actually see who's buying what from you. You're not shielded from that end consumption, who's that, you know, what different types of products or services your end customers are purchasing. So I think fundamentally where that leads you is to, to help you identify the white space opportunities that you've got in your clients. And there's a lot of AB type of modeling that you can do, meaning you know, customer A buys these 10 things, customer B only buys five of them. Why are they not buying the other five? Um, they, you know, they're similar customers, similar in size in the same geography and so on. So there's a lot of, of additional analysis you can do to figure out where your white space is. I think the, you know, the other thing that comes out of all of this, this data is as you look to underwrite new customers, as you look to get them onboarded, you've got an increased risk around fraud. I don't know how much you talk on this podcast about business identity theft. Mm -hmm. It's something I think that's really underrepresented because it's a very real challenge. And and as businesses are more and more online and their information is online and they find each other online, I think this idea of business identity theft is going to become a barrier if you don't get it right, uh, because it's so easy to pretend to be another company. Um, most of the information around you know, where they were incorporated, who their offices are, what their address is, their phone numbers, et cetera, all of that stuff is online. And so it's, uh, you've got to be very aware of somebody pretending to be a business. And, you know, we see it all the time where somebody just makes a small change in a URL, they add an I or they add an S or they, they just make a, you know, they reverse two letters in a, in a URL. Um, you know, we see it in our personal lives too, right? You get these phishing attempts all the time. And, uh, and it's even more difficult to identify this with businesses. That's, yeah, you know, we, we have had fraud episodes, um, but that has largely for the podcast, it's largely focused on um, the consumer threat, mm -hmm. not the business threat. So that's not something that I personally have spent a lot of time thinking about um, that, you know, people are targeting businesses in order to 
gain access and do whatever. Yeah, order to, you know, get, get a credit line, um, order a, you know, pallets of laptops and, and have them delivered. You know, the, obviously, the type of product you sell depends on on whether you'll be more or less of a target for you know for these sorts of uh, these sorts of attacks. But if you have something that's easily resellable, then we see we see a lot of, of business identity theft. We get hundreds of applications a month where where you you know and we have a whole bunch of flags we use to check and validate that whether the data looks real or whether it looks like it's suspicious. But it's it's much more prevalent than you would realize. And and as more of the you know the first interaction, the way you acquire your customers moves to an online channel, so you need to be more aware of this. You know, obviously, if somebody worked and in, walked into your store in the past or interacted with a salesperson, you might um, you might have less risk in those channels. But when it all happens online, it's hard to know where the person is based. It's hard to know whether what they're saying, the business they represent, it is is in fact that business. And it's also hard to know whether they can actually bind the company, whether, you know, particularly if you're, you're offering a line of credit to them, it's difficult to know whether they can bind the company. Fascinating. Um, so circling back to some of the customer expectations, uh, one of the ways that you, Trevi Pay, thinks a lot about is, is customer expectations and payments, right? And, and you yeah. talked about how Millennials are, um, you know, looking for a ease of use buying experience in a B two B landscape. How does payments fit into that? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, more often than not, the the buyers, the customers, they want choice, they want options, and that can be everything from how you aggregate the data on an invoice. So. They might not want an invoice every day, for example. They might want you to accumulate all the transactions over a week and then send them a weekly invoice. They might want that to be regional because there might be a large buyer and they've got a, an AP processing center in a certain part of the country. Um, they might want different terms, 30-day terms, 45-day terms, 60-day terms, so that they can more align their cash flow with how they interact with their customers. So all of those, uh, those aspects of flexibility uh, really drive um, the share of wallet that we think you can get with a customer. I, I think related to that, not just around the actual payment piece itself, but how easily you can get them data on an invoice so that they know what to do with it in their accounts payable department. And that might be as simple as adding a purchase order reference on an invoice. It might be a project code. It might be a cost center. And so the more you can do the things that help the buyer or the customer deal with the fact that they've got multiple stakeholders. So there's somebody in accounts payable that's got to do the, do the payment and there's a budget owner. And then there's the person perhaps who made the purchase. So long as all three of those people can get the information they need on the invoice, then you'll have a very simple, smooth, slick payment process. And what we've seen is if you get that right, then your share of wallet with that customer will go up. If you're easier to do business with than your competition, then generally speaking, you, you have a better, bigger share of wallet with that customer. That makes sense. I mean, it people are so busy and they are, you know, just trying to simplify whatever process they can. So if they can make the invoicing process be more seamless and have require less 
you know, mind share, less brain power, it would make sense that it would just be an easy pass through. Exactly. And it can be something as simple as, as, um, you know, you, you send, uh, you have a, you load the invoice into their invoice portal. So we've seen a, a real trend these days where the customers don't want to rekey the information from an invoice. They either want to get that via an integration or they want to have it loaded directly into their portal. And if you do that for them, then they have a much more simplified process on their end for getting your payment approved and the, the, the funding of the invoice approved. So you obviously have an incentive to do that. Now, the only challenge that exists as a merchant is, or as a, as a seller, you might have to do that for a hundred different portals, which could obviously be, you know, painful and take a lot of time. Uh, but that's why there's, you know, companies like ourselves. We can we can help with all of that and make sure that that's an easy process for the merchant as well. Where do you? I'm curious. Where do you see companies slip up most often as they're making this? pivot to a direct channel? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I think there's, there's probably several areas. You know, one is culture for sure. I think uh, digital transformation really requires, you know, structural process, behavioral changes within the organization. Um, and, and so that, you know, you just need to have the organization thinking differently. Uh, there's, there's often you, you need to, it's, a, it's an obvious statement, but you need to have a, a clear strategy and vision of what you're trying to do with that channel. And so we saw, you know, this rapid acceleration during COVID, which put a lot of pressure on companies to, to basically build out these digital channels and go faster, but not necessarily having a clear sense of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, how do I segment the customer base so that I avoid channel conflict? Or how do I make sure that I have a sales team that's still incented to, to sell? Because obviously part of what a channel does typically is the sales activity. So how are you replacing those sales activities or how are you going to augment them? There's also IT infrastructure pieces to this. So in many cases, uh, the, the, you know, how, you, how you use your e-commerce website or, or how you use an e-marketplace to uh, to interact with these customers might be might be uh, you might be underinvested in in that, and uh, may not have it connected, for example, back with your inventory. And so, if a customer places an order, if they have a dis- dysfunctional process there where they place an order and then get an email that says, "Oh, I'm sorry, we're out of stock," that's going to be a bad customer experience. And so, the more infrastructure that you can have, IT infrastructure that can make sure that the customers can see what they can buy, that it's an easy buying experience. I think is is crucial, and then lastly is the organizational structure supporting this, which is everything from how are you going to sell in this new world, how are those sales structures going to work, uh, how are you going to onboard, service, manage the customers, how are you going to provide credit lines, how are you going to collect from them, and so on. I think all of that organizational muscle and and capabilities need to be in place, and so when when companies trip up on this it's because they forget about one or, or multiple of these dimensions or they just do them very quickly and don't necessarily come back around and, and basically build them out to make sure that they, they can be efficient. Yes, absolutely. Where do you think are the biggest opportunities for Trevi Pay in the future? Yeah, we're, you know, we're, um, I think we're pretty excited about what the future holds because 
so much of the the b2b interaction model is moving online so many industries are going through this transformation where the way you go to market is going to be different and as a consequence of that many companies don't necessarily want to do this work themselves they don't many sellers many merchants don't necessarily want to deal with these customers directly and so we're a good a good option for outsourcing this uh, and so we're we're very excited about you know manufacturing retail e-commerce e-marketplaces we think all of those categories have got tremendous growth because there's a lot of change occurring in those industries and if you just overlay on top of that and you know I know you guys deal with this a ton as well just the geographic footprint issues of of if you trying to enter a new market and the complexities of entering a new market and uh, and obviously with e-commerce the world gets smaller and smaller and so if you're a US seller and you you know happen to have an international buyer that wants to purchase from you are you going to lose that sale or are you going to figure out how to how to onboard that customer so i think there's just so much scope for for growth uh in in many of these industries but in particular manufacturing retail e-marketplaces and e-commerce we see lots of opportunities absolutely it seems like you know in the business world right now um you know everyone is sort of holding their breath to see what life after covid even though COVID is not over, <laughs> but you know, the business world is trying to understand what that will eventually look like. Um, I'm curious your prediction. Do you think that there'll be any sort of shift back to the way things were, or the train has left the station and it's just con- going to continue on? Where, where do you land? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a challenging question because, you know, I think we all grapple with this. What do we think the future is going to look like here? Uh, I, I don't think there's any likelihood that we go back to the way business was completely before. I think that uh, tools like, you know, the one we're using now and video conferencing and, and everything else has made such a, a rapid advance in the last 24 months uh, and we've all seen just the efficiency of of meeting like this instead of getting on a plane and traveling uh, that I don't think it ever goes back completely to the way it was. Now, having said that, I think that uh, there is always going to be value in personal interaction. There's always going it's always a more efficient way, particularly in larger groups, to meet face to face. And so I think there'll be some sort of hybrid that unfolds here. And, uh, and I think you know, it won't be the same as before, but it also won't be a completely remote world either. I think there'll, there'll likely be a balance between the two. Um, and, uh, and I think every company, every industry will probably figure out what that balance looks like for them. You know, if you're in the airline industry, you're always going to be face to face. There's no, there's no real choice. But if you're in software or, you know, the sorts of businesses we're in, then it's much easier to have more of a hybrid model. So I think each industry will be different and each industry uh, will not likely go back to the way it was before entirely. I think that's right too. And, and that, you know, really what this has taught us all is that businesses need to be prepared for anything. So they need to have different processes and, and mechanisms in place so that no matter, you know, what is thrown at them, they, are able to continue to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, you know, I've, I've read all kinds of reports on on how the pandemic really accelerated digital transformation. Everything from 
you know, five years work was done in 18 months. And I, I think there's probably some real truth in that is that, you know, processes that were historically manual or, you know, you hadn't really paid attention to them because they just worked and, you know, people were in the office to do them. The minute people, you minute your staff had to go remote, it exposed all of those manual steps. Even simple things like somebody in the mail room who's opening the envelopes that might have the checks that you were getting. Yeah, you know, how 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 do you have, you know, why would you re-engineer that process prior to the pandemic? Now almost all of those types of processes are being rethought and reevaluated and shifted to more digital processes. That's completely right. Um, so Brandon, I want to wrap things up with, we have a list of questions that we always like to hear from people because we talk to such interesting guests. So would love to hear, um, you know, who influences or inspires you? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, like I mentioned at the start of the call, I, uh, I grew up in South Africa and I think one of the most inspiring leaders our country had and who was just a tremendous agent of change was Nelson Mandela. Um, remarkable human being. You know, I'm glad uh, he was uh, able to do what he was able to do in, in my lifetime. And, and um, so when, whenever you think of, of somebody who kind of epitomizes being able to, you know, to forgive and forget and move forward and take a country forward, I think he's just a tremendous human being. So, uh, so in terms of humanitarian and leadership, uh, I think of somebody like that. Uh, in terms of the business world, I actually think of somebody like uh, Elon Musk. So I've got a cool story to tell you and the rest of the, the people on your podcast that I was actually in the same school as him in South Africa. Oh, wow. Uh, we were classmates for a short period of time. I have no doubt he does not remember me at all. <laughs> But, uh, but he's, you know, he's been a remarkable individual as well because he's really transformed. He basically transforms any industry he touches. So wherever he goes, he changes the industry forever. He did it in payments. He's obviously done it in space exploration. And he's doing it now in the auto industry. So I think those two are, uh, you know, both individuals that I look at that inspire me. Quite different. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, we're always, uh, talking about, since we live and breathe e-commerce, I'm always, you know, talking to the team and the, the guests of our podcast about what's a recent buying experience you had it can be in the business world, or it could be in your consumer life, um, that really either blew you away or the opposite and was not as, um, up to par as you would want it to be. Yeah, so you know, I think the um, we've we've obviously all had the you know the Amazon experiences and and you know bought a tremendous amount of stuff online uh, during the course of the pandemic. I think the you know the the industry category that has just blown me away with how it's changed and and will probably never buy groceries the same way again. Um, is is all these these different vendors that have appeared that are doing the online shopping for groceries, and when I think about um, that interaction model, I, I personally don't do it all the time, but my wife does it, you know, at least once a week, and I see her, you know, texting backwards and forwards with a person who's walking around a store buying stuff for her, and I think about would we ever have done that not you know had the pandemic not come along I, I don't know if that would ever have happened 
And I think about how real time that whole interaction is where you've got a shopper there that's confirming, is this the brand that you want to buy? Um, and I know how, you know, prior to that, if I was out there in the store buying stuff for my wife, I was always getting it wrong. I was always buying the wrong brand. So you should have been texting um, her. Now you I know. I should have been texting. I, I never kind of figured out that that was how the interaction model had to work. So I think that whole experience is remarkable. I think it's amazing how how real time that all is, and and uh, how fortunate we are that the you know whether it's the cellular network infrastructure or Wi-Fi, how it's been how it's been able to enable that. Yeah, it is pretty incredible when you think about how far that's all come. Yeah, and, and and I saw just a you know a TV um, uh, segment the other day uh, on Kroger, and I don't know if you saw it, but it's it's the coolest TV segment. You should go and look it up on Kroger here. So I have not seen that one. So it's uh, it's remarkable. They've built this entire distribution warehouse that will effectively automate that picking experience. So they've got robots that move around this grid that are fulfilling your order and, and they can fulfill several hundred orders per hour with these robots that basically wow. pick your order for you. Wow. So, that's so there's a, there's the next generation of that that's coming. So cool. Um, and then, you know, I am a lifelong learner. We're lifelong learners on this commerce connect podcast. Where, what are you reading or listening to that has been really interesting to you recently? You know, I, um, I always have, have loved reading um, the, the, some of the Harvard Business Review uh, 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 articles as well as the McKinsey Quarterlies. I think they always have really interesting, they're short articles, they're simple to read. Uh, they've always got some pretty interesting you know, insights in them. And then from a podcast point of view, I often listen to the Gartner Thinkcast, which I think is has also got a bunch of interesting insights on technology and business and 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 what's changing. Um, so I, I subscribe to those three, get uh, kind of regular updates on on them, and and uh, love reading their articles. Amazing, I like that. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, probably the, the the best way is uh, through LinkedIn. Uh, I've uh, um, uh, Brandon Spirit, Trevi Pay. You should be able to find me there. Uh, it's a good way to connect with me. Um, I love getting new connections on on LinkedIn, so you know, please uh, please reach out. Always looking for uh, for more people in the network, uh, and then uh, obviously also you know through uh, through our uh, web page through Trevi Pay, uh, we've got contact us sections there, and if you want to reach out that way, that would be a good way to contact me as well. Amazing, Brandon. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was fun chatting with you. You've been listening to Commerce Connect, brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to digitalriver.com.